12. Rithing correct. And there the matter ends. How history repeats itself. Compare this with the conduct of certain treasury officials along the Mississippi during our late war. The cases were exactly parallel. The government scandalized, trade restricted, and merchants plundered, to fill the pockets of rapacious officers. I began to think the Mongol more like the Anglo-Saxon than ethnologists believe, and found an additional argument for the unity of the human race. If I knew the Emperor of China I should counsel him to open his oblique eyes. If he does not he may find the conduct of the Igun police a serious affair for his dominions. Russia, like Oliver Twist, desires more. When the opportunity comes she will quietly take possession of Manjuria and hold both banks of the Amur. If the Treaty of 1860 continues to be violated the Governor-General of Eastern Siberia will have an excellent excuse for taking the district of Igun and all it contains under his powerful protection. On the day I reached Blagoveshensk I saw an emigrant camp near the town. The emigrants had just landed from the rafts with which they descended the Amur. They came from Astrakhan, near the mouth of the Volga, more than 5,000 miles away, and had been two years on their travels. They came with wagons to the headwaters of the Amur, and their built rafts, on which they loaded everything, including wagons and teams, and floated to their destination. I did not find their wagons as convenient as our own, though doubtless they are better adapted to the road. The Russian wagon had a semicircular body, as if a long hogshead were divided lengthwise and the half of it mounted on wheels, with the open part uppermost. There was a covering of coarse cloth over a light framework, lower and less wide than our army wagons. Household goods fill the wagons, and the emigrants walk for the most part during all their land journey. I spent a few minutes at the camp near the town, and found the picture much like what I saw years ago beyond the Mississippi. Men were busy with their cattle and securing them for the night, one boy was bringing water from the river, and another gathering fuel for the fire, a young woman was preparing supper, and an older one endeavored, under shelter of the wagon cover, to put a crying child to sleep. Westward our star of empire takes its way, Russian emigration presses eastward and seeks the rising, as ours the setting Sunday chapter XIX. During my stay at Blagoveshensk the governor invited me to assist at a gazelle hunt. At nine o'clock on the day appointed we assembled at the house of the chief of staff. I breakfasted before going there, but it was necessary to discuss the coming hunt over a second breakfast. Six or eight ladies were of the party, and the affair had the general appearance of a picnic. The governor seated me in his carriage at the side of Madame Pideshank and we led the company to the field of expected slaughter, with four horses abreast, to attach to a pole and to outside. We dashed over an excellent road leading back from the town. There were three other carriages and two or three common wagons, in which the occupants rode on bundles of hay. There was a little vehicle on two wheels, a sort of light gig with a seat for only one person, driven by a lady. Five or six officers were on horseback and we had a detachment of twenty mounted Cossacks to beat the bush, excluding the Cossacks and drivers. There were about thirty persons in the party, a mysterious wagon laden with boxes and kegs composed, the baggage train. The governor explained that this wagon contained the ammunition for the hunters. No gazelle could have looked upon those kegs and boxes without trembling in his boots. A range of low hills six miles from town was the spot selected for the hunt. There were nine armed men to be stationed across this range within shooting distance of each other. The Cossacks were to make a circuitous route and come upon the hills two or three miles away, where, forming a long line and making much noise, 
they would advance in our direction, any game that happened in the way would be driven to us, we were to stand our ground with firmness and shoot any gazelle that attacked us, I determined to fight it out on that line, the road from Blagoveshensk led over a birch-covered plain to the bank of the Zaya, four miles away, we passed on the right a small mill, which was to be replaced in the following year by a steam-flowering establishment, the first on the Amur. On reaching the Zaya I found a village named Astrakanka, in honor of Astrakhan at the mouth of the Volga. The settlers had lived there three or four years, and were succeeding well in agriculture. They were of the class known as German Mennonites, who settled on the steppes of southern Russia at the commencement of the present century. They are members of the Lutheran Church, and famed for their industry and their care in managing their flocks and fields. The governor praised them warmly and expressed the kindest hopes for their prosperity. We left the road near the village and passed through a field in the direction of the hunting ground. Two men were at work with a yoke of oxen and a plow, whose beam rested on the axle of a pair of wheels. The yoke was like the one in use everywhere along the Amur, and was made of two pieces of thick plank, one above and the other below the animal's necks, with wooden pins to join them and bear the strain. The plow was quite primitive and did not stir the soil like an American or English plow. At the hunting ground we alighted and took our stations. The governor stood under a small oak, and the ladies rested on the grass near him. I went to the next post up the hollow, and the other hunters completed the line. Dr. Snyder went to aid me in taking a deer gazelle, to glad me with its soft black eye. He was armed with a cigar, while I had a double-barreled gun, loaded at not to the muzzle. The Cossacks went to rouse the game, but their first drive resulted in nothing beyond a prodigious noise. When they started for the second drive I followed the doctor in a temporary visit to the ladies. During this absence from duty a large gazelle passed within ten steps of my station. I ran toward my post, but was not as nimble as the frightened deer. Tyrus, commanded the governor, fire, shouted the doctor, and I obeyed the double injunction. The distance was great and the animal not stationary. I fired, and the governor fired, but the only effect was to quicken the speed of our game. I never knew a gazelle to run faster. Three weeks later I saw a beast greatly resembling him running on a meadow a thousand miles from Blagoveshensk. Whether it was the same or another I will not attempt to say. A few minutes after this failure the horn of the hunter was heard on the hill, and two gazelles passed the line, but no game was secured. The governor proposed a change of base and led us where the mysterious wagon had halted. The ammunition was revealed. There were carpets and cloths on the grass, plates, knives and forks, edibles in variety, wine, ale, and other liquids, and the samovar steaming merrily at our side. I think we acquitted ourselves better at this part of the hunt than at any other. The picnic did not differ much from an American one, the most noticeable feature being the substantial character of solids and liquids. Most of us sat on the grass and stumps, the number of camp stools not exceeding half a dozen. Finishing the lunch we took a new hunting spot and managed to kill a gazelle and a large hare. A fourth drive brought no game, and we returned to enjoy another lunch and drink a Russian beverage called Janka. In its preparation a pound or two of loaf sugar in a single lump is fixed on a wire frame above a copper pan. A bottle of cognac is poured over the sugar and set on fire. The sugar melts and when the fire is almost extinguished a bottle of claret and one of champagne are added. The compound is taken hot, and has a sweet and very smooth taste. The Russians are fond of producing this beverage when they have foreign guests, and if taken freely it has a weakening tendency. 
The captain of the Variag told me he had placed several British officers under his table by employing this article, and there was a rumor that the Fox Embassy to St. Petersburg was quite severely laid out by means of Jonka. The lunch finished we discharged our guns and returned to town at a rapid pace. While descending the bank of a brook our horses turned suddenly and nearly overset the carriage. The doctor and I jumped out to lighten the lower side, and were just in season to keep the wheels on the ground. Madame Pideshank followed into the arms of the strong doctor, but the governor, true to the martial instinct, remained in his place and gave instructions to the driver. We did not re-enter the carriage until it was across the brook. The horses were exercised rather violently during the remainder of the journey. I think the gazelle we killed was identical with the antelope of our western plains. He had a skin of the same color and a white tail. That retreating flag of truce so familiar to our overland emigrants. His feet, head, and body were shaped like the antelopes. And his eye had that liquid tenderness so often observed in the agile rover near the foot of the Rocky Mountains. Gazelles abound through the Amor Valley to within a hundred miles of the seacoast. Many are killed every autumn and winter in the valley of the Zaya and along the middle Amor. The flesh is eaten and the skin used for winter coats and similar articles. The commerce of Blagoveshchensk is in the hands of half a dozen merchants. One French, one German, and the rest Russian. The Amor company before its affairs were ended kept there one of its principal stores, which was bought, with stock and goodwill. By the company's clerk, the wants of the officers, soldiers, and civilians in the town and its vicinity are sufficient to create a good local trade. Prices are high, nearly double those of Nikolaevsk, and the stocks of goods on hand are neither large nor well selected. Officers complain to me of combinations among the merchants to maintain prices at an exorbitant scale. I stayed four days at Blagoveshchensk, and as the season was growing late was quite anxious to depart. The days were charming, corresponding to our Indian summer, and the nights cool and frosty. The passenger on our steamer from Igun said ice would be running in the river in 25 days unless the season should be unusually mild. Russians and Chinese were preparing for cold weather, and I wished to do the same farther westward. Borstein contemplated a land journey in case we were delayed more than five days. The Korsakov was the only steamer to ascend the river and she was waiting for the Constantine to bring her a barge. On the evening of the 5th October the governor informed me the Korsakov would start on the next day. Barge or no barge, this was cheering, and I celebrated the occasion by boiling myself in a Russian bath. I look upon the bath as one of the blessings of Russia. At the end of a journey, when one is sore and stiff in the joints, it is an effectual medicine. After it the patient sleeps soundly, and rises in the morning thoroughly invigorated. Too much bathing deadens the complexion and enfeebles the body, but a judicious amount is beneficial. It is the Russian custom, not always observed, to bathe once a week. The injury from the bath is in consequence of too high temperature of steam and water, causing a severe shock to the system. Taken properly the bath has no bad effects, and will cure rheumatism, some forms of neuralgia, and several other acute diseases. The bathhouse is a building of two, and generally three, rooms. In the outer room you undress, and your key lavic, or servant, does the same. If there is but another room you are led directly into it, and find a hot fire in a large stove. There is a cauldron of hot water and a barrel of cold water close at hand. The tools of the operator are a bucket, two or three basins, a bar of soap, a switch of birch boughs, and a bunch of matting. 
If there are three apartments the second is only an empty room, not very warm and calculated to prepare you for the last and hottest of all. The Kilavik begins by throwing a bucket of warm water over you. He follows this with another, and then a third, fourth, and fifth, each a little warmer than its predecessor. On one side of the room is a series of benches like a terrace or flight of large steps. You are placed horizontally on a bench, and with warm water, soap, and bunch of matting the servant scrubs you from head to foot with a manipulation more thorough than gentle. The temperature of the room is usually about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, but it may be more or less. It induces vigorous perspiration, and sets the blood glowing and tingling, but it never melts the flesh nor breaks the smallest blood vessel. The finishing touch is to ascend the platform near the ceiling and allow the servant to throw water upon hot stones from the furnace. There is always a cloud of steam filling the room and making objects indistinct. You easily become accustomed to the ordinary heat. But when water is dropped upon the stones there is a rush of blistering steam. It catches you on the platform and you think how unfortunate is a lobster when he goes to pot and exchanges his green for scarlet. I declined this coup de grace after a single experience. To my view it is the objectionable feature of the Russian bath. I was always content after that to retire before the last course, and only went about halfway up the terrace. The birchen switch is to whip the patient during the washing process, but is not applied with unpleasant force. To finish the bath you are drenched with several buckets of water descending from hot to cold, but not, as some declare, terminating with ice water. This little fiction is to amuse the credulous, and would be important if true. Men have sometimes rushed from the bath into a snow bank, but the occurrence is unusual. Sometimes the peasants leave the bath for a swim in the river, but they only do so in mild weather. In all the cities there are public bathrooms, where men are steamed, polished, and washed in large numbers. In bathing the Russians are more gregarious than English or Americans. A Russian would think no more of bathing with several others than of dining at a hotel table. Nearly every private house has its bathroom and its frequent use can hardly fail to be noticed by travelers. On the morning of the 6th the Constantine arrived, having left the Korsakov's barge hard aground below Agoon, so we were to start an encumbered. I took my baggage to the Korsakov, and was obliged to traverse two barges before I reached the boat. Twelve o'clock was the hour appointed for our departure, and at eleven the fires were burning in the furnaces. A hundred men were transferring freight from the Constantine to the Korsakov, and made a busy scene. Four men carrying a box of muskets ran against me on a narrow plank, and had not my good friend the doctor seized me I should have plunged headlong into the river. The heyday in my blood was tame, I had no desire to fall into a lamour at that season. At eleven there came an invitation to lunch with the governor at two. How is this? I said to the doctor, start at twelve and lunch here two hours later. Smiling the doctor replied, I see you have not yet learned our customs. The governor is the autocrat, and though the captain positively declares he will start at noon you need not be uneasy. He will not go till you are on board, and very likely you will meet him at lunch. At two o'clock I was at the governor's, where I found the anxious captain. When our lunch was finished Madame Pideshank gave me some wild grapes of native production. They were about the size of peas, and quite acid in taste. With cultivation they might be larger and better flavored. Just as many of our American grapes have improved in the past 20 years, some of the hardier grapes might be successfully grown on the middle and or, but the cold is too long and severe for tender vines. 
Attached to his dwelling the governor has a hot house that forms a pleasant retreat in winter. He hopes to introduce vines and raise hot house grapes in Siberia within a few years. I walked to the boat with Dr. and Madam Snyder, our promenade being enlivened by a runaway horse that came near dragging a cart over us. The governor and his lady were there, with nearly all the officers, and after saying adieu I stepped on board, and we left the pier. We waved kerchiefs again and again as long as waves could be seen. There was a cabin on the Corsac off about eight feet square, with four small rooms opening out of it. Borstein and I had two of these. My apartment had two bunks and no bedding, but the deficiency was atoned for by a large number of hungry and industrious fleas. Of my blankets and pillow I made my own bed, and slept in it as on the Ingona. My only chair was a camp stool I carried from San Francisco with the design of giving it away on reaching the end of my water travel. Going on board the steamer I met a drunken priest endeavoring to walk to the pier, and in the cabin I found another lying on a sofa, and, as I supposed, very ill. Borstein observed my look of compassion, and indicated by signs the cause of the malady. The priest going ashore had been saying farewell to the one on board, and their partings were to such as press the life from out young hearts and bottles. Our holy passenger did not feel himself again until the next day. There are many good men among the priests of the Eastern Church in Siberia, but it must also be admitted there are many bad ones. In a country where the clergy wields as great power as in Russia the authorities should take care that the representatives of the church set a good example. The intemperance so prevalent among the peasantry is partly due to the debaucheries of the priesthood, where the people follow their religious leaders with blind faith and obey their commands in all the forms of worship. Are they not in danger of following the example of drunkenness? Russian officers frequently spoke of the condition of the church in eastern Siberia and declared with emphasis that it needed reformation. Our priests, said one, have carried our religion wherever our armies have carried conquest, and their efforts to advance Christianity deserve all praise. But abuses exist and have grown up, and the whole system needs to be arranged anew. We had much freight on board, consisting chiefly of muskets for the province of the Transbaikal. There were many passengers that lived liberally on deck. They were aft of the engines and above our cabin. On deck we had the forward part of the boat as on the Ingona. The deck passengers were soldiers, and Cossacks in their long grey coats, and peasants of all ages in garments of sheepskin. There were women with infants, and women without infants, the former being the more numerous. They were on deck day and night, unless when opportunity offered to go on shore. They did their cooking at the galley or at a stove near the stern of the boat. They never made any noise or disturbance. Beyond the usual confusion where many persons are confined in a small space, there were three horses tied just over my cabin with only a single plank between their heels and my head. Nearly every night their horse polkas and gallops disturbed my sleep. Sometimes early in the morning, when the frost was biting, they would have kicking matches of twenty or thirty minutes, conducted with the greatest vigor. The temporary stable was closed to the cabin skylight so that we had the odors of a barnyard without extra charge. This would have been objectionable under other circumstances. But the cabin was so dirty that one could not be fastidious about trifles. The captain had a neat cabin of his own on the upper deck, and did not trouble himself much about the quarters of his passengers, as the regulations do not require him to look after their welfare. He was a careful commander and prompt in discharging his duties. By law steamboat captains cannot carry their wives on board, 
this officer had a little arrangement by which he was able to keep the word of promise to the ear and break it to the hope. We were assured of fuel at starting, and barely escaped trouble in consequence. The first pile visible contained only a cord or two, we took this and several posts that had been fixed in the ground to mark the locality. When this supply was burned we cut up our landing planks and all the spare bits of wood we could find. A court of inquiry was held over the horse troughs, but they were considered too much water soaked for our purpose. As a last resort I had a pound of candles and a flask of brandy, but we happily reached a wood station without using my light baggage. The court sack-off was an iron boat of a hundred horsepower, with hull and engines of English make. Her cabins were very small and as dirty as diminutive. There was no cabin school word, and I sincerely believe there had never been one. We were warned of this before leaving Blagoveshchensk, and by way of precaution purchased enough bread, pickles, cheese, mustard, preserves, candles, etc. to stock a modest grocery. We bought eggs at the landings, and arranged for the samovar every morning. We engaged a Cossack passenger as our servant for the voyage, and when we wished our eggs boiled we sent him with them to the cook. Of course we had an arrangement with the latter functionary. Our next move was to make terms with the captain's steward for a dinner at the hour when he fed his chief. Our negotiations required much diplomacy, but our existence depended upon it. And what will not man accomplish when he wants bread and meat? We spread our table in one of our rooms. For breakfast we took tea and boiled eggs. And for dinner we had cabbage soup, roast beef or fowl, and cutlets. The cook succeeded very well and as our appetites were pretty sharp we voted the dinner as a success. We used our own bread, tea, pickles, and preserves, employing the latter as a concluding dish. Our Cossack was not very skillful at housework, and made many blunders in serving. Frequently he brought the soup tureen before arranging the table, and it took him some time to learn the disadvantage of this practice. Leaving Blagoveshchensk the country continued level near the river. But the mountains gradually approached it and on the south bank they came to the water 15 or 20 miles above Sakhalinola. On the north the plain was wider, but it terminated about 40 miles above Blagoveshchensk, a series of low hills taking its place. The first day we ran 25 or 30 versts before sunset. The river was less than a mile wide, and the volume of water sensibly diminished above the Zaya. As the hills approached the river they assumed the form of bluffs or headlands with plateaus extending back from their summits. The scenery reminded me of Lake Pepin and the region just above it. On the northern shore, between these bluffs and the river, there was an occasional strip of meadow that afforded clinging room to a Russian village. At two or three settlements there was an abundance of hay and grain in stacks, and droves of well-federal cattle, that indicated the favorable character of the country. At most villages along the Amur I found the crow and magpie abundant and very tame. At Blagoveshchensk several of these birds amused me in sharing the dinner of some hogs to the great disgust of the latter. When the meal was finished they lighted on the backs of the hogs and would not dismount until the latter rolled in the dirt. No one appears to think them worth of shooting, and I presume they do no damage. One day walking on shore I saw a flock of pigeons, and returned to the boat for Borstein's gun. As I took it I remarked that I would shoot a few pigeons for dinner. Never think of it, said my friend, and why? because you will make the peasants your enemies. The news would spread that you had killed a pigeon, and every peasant would dislike you. For what reason? The pigeon or dove is held sacred throughout Russia. He is the living symbol of the Holy Spirit in the faith of the Eastern Church. 
and he brought the olive branch to the ark when the flood had ceased. No Russian would harm one of these birds, and for you to do so would show disrespect to the religion of the country. I went on shore again, but without a gun. Every day we saw rafts moving with the stream or tide along the shore. They were of logs cut on the upper anor, and firmly fastened with poles and withes. An emigrant piles his wagon and household goods on a raft, and makes a pen at one side to hold his cattle. Two or three families, with as many wagons and a dozen or twenty animals, were frequently on one raft. A pile of earth was the fireplace, and there was generally a tent or shelter of some kind. Cattle were fed with hay carried on board, or were turned ashore at night to graze. Some rafts were entirely laden with cattle on their way to market or for government use at Nikolaevsk. This is the most economical mode of transportation, as the cattle feed themselves on shore at night, and the rafts float with the current by day. A great deal of heavy freight has been carried down the Amur in this way, and losses are of rare occurrence. The system is quite analogous to the flatboat navigation of the Mississippi before steamboats were established. We met a few Russian boats floating or propelled by oars, one of them having a crew of six Cossacks and making all haste in descending. We supposed it contained the mail due at Blagoveshensk when we left. The government has not enough steamers to perform its service regularly, and frequently uses rowboats. The last mail at Blagoveshensk before my arrival came in a rowboat in 15 days from Stransk. Ascending the river we made slow progress even without a barge. Our machinery was out of order and we only carried half steam. We ran only by day, and unfortunately the nights had a majority of the time. We frequently took wood in the middle of the day, and on such occasions lost from one to three hours. Our average progress was about 60 miles a day. I could not help contrasting this with journeys I have made on the Mississippi at the rate of 200 miles in 24 hours. A government boat has no occasion to hurry like a private one, and the pilot's imperfect knowledge of the Amor operates against rapidity. In time I presume the Siberian boats will increase their speed. The second day from Blagoveshensk we were aware the Amor flows 25 versts around a peninsula only one verst wide. Just above this, at the village of Korsakov, was the foot of another bend of 28 versts with a width of 3. Borstein and I proposed walking and hunting across the last neck of land, but the lateness of the hour forbade the excursion, as we did not wish to pass the night on shore, and it was doubtful if the boat could double the point before dark. We should have crossed the first peninsula had it not been in Chinese territory. To prevent possible intrusion the Celestials have a guardhouse at the bend. At the guardhouse we could see half a dozen soldiers with matchlocks and lances. There was a low house 15 or 20 feet square and daubed with mud according to the Chinese custom. There was a quantity of rubbish on the ground, and a couple of horses were standing ready saddled near it. 50 feet from the house was a building like a sentry box. With two flagstaffs before it, it was the temple where the soldiers were shipped according to the ceremonies of their faith. I have been much with the army in my own country, but never saw a military post of two buildings where one structure was a chapel. Above the village of Kizakavich, at the upper extremity of the bend, there was some picturesque scenery. On one side there were a precipitous cliffs two or three hundred feet high, and on the other a meadow or plateau with hills in the background. The villages on this part of the river are generally built 20 or 30 feet above high water mark. They have the same military precision that is observed below the Zaya, and each has a bathhouse set in the bank. Frequently we found these bathhouses in operation. 
and on one occasion two boys came out clad in the elegant costume of the Greek slave, without her fetters. They gazed at the boat with perfect sang-froid, the thermometer being just above freezing point. The scene reminded me of the careless manners of the natives at Panama. Opposite Komarskoy the cliffs on the Chinese shore are perpendicular, and continue so for several miles. At their base there is a strong current, where we met a raft descending nearly five miles an hour. In going against the stream our pilots did not seek the edge of the river like their brethren of the Mississippi, but faced the current in the center. Possibly they thought a middle course the safest, and remembered the fate of the celebrated youth who took a short route when he drove the sun. Two miles above the settlement is Cape Comara, a perpendicular or slightly overhanging rock of dark granite 300 feet high. Nothing but a word or more an insect could climb its face, and a fall from its top into the river would not be desirable. The Russians have erected a large cross upon the summit, visible for some distance up and down the river, above this rock which appears like a sentinel. The valley is wider and the stream flows among many islands. We saw just below this rock a manger boat tied to the shore, the crew breakfasting near a fire and the captain smoking in apparent inconcern at a little distance. On the opposite bank there was a Chinese custom house and military station. It had the same kind of house and temple and the same number of men and horses as the post farther down. Had it possessed a pile of rubbish and a barking dog the similarity would have been complete. There is abundance of water in the Amor except for drinking purposes. I was obliged to adopt the plan of towing a bottle out of the cabin window till it filled. The deck passengers used to look with wonder on my foreign invention, and doubtless supposed I was experimenting for scientific purposes. I have heard of a captain on the Ohio who forbade water to his passengers on account of the low stage of the river. Possibly the Russian captains are fearful that too much use of water may affect navigation in future years. Chapter XX. There is a sameness and yet a variety in the scenery of the Amor two or three hundred miles above Komarskoy. The sameness is in the general outlines which can be described, the variety is in the many little details of distance, shadow, and coloring, which no pen can picture. In the general features there are cliffs, hills, ravines, islands, and occasional meadows, with forests of birch, pine, larch, 